I realize now that the Bible study candidate that he had assigned me to probably was not, let's just say they probably weren't going to ask a lot of deep theological questions. It's probably on pretty safe ground, but I didn't know that as a child or as a teenager. So here we are today. Tremendous honor. I give honor to pastor. Thank you for everything you've sowed into my life and, and, and all of the things there. And I'm going to tell you, I'm looking forward to the future. I'm looking forward to what God's going to do. We, we didn't see this day 25 years ago in terms of, of this church and, and all of you that are here. I can't imagine what's got, what God's going to do in the next few weeks and days and months and years. The sky's the limit. And I'm going to tell you this. We live in a world that globally we're, we're in chaos. There, there's confusion. There's uncertainty. There's, there, there, nobody's real. We, we've learned in the last two weeks how volatile the stock market can be and all those things. But I'm going to tell you, if you look back at the historical record, the church has always flourished in the midst of global crisis. That's when the church sees its fire. There'll be earthquakes, natural disasters, and you'll see revival being poured out. You'll see God pouring out His Spirit. I say this is our finest hour. I say that if we would ride the wave that God has for us, Grace Church can be more than it's ever been. We can do more than we've ever done. And God will show up and do the miraculous. Do you believe that in the house today? I want to go to the Word of God. And before you're seated, uh, just read a verse of Scripture in your hearing and I just remarked to Brother Wheeler, I'm so thankful for a church environment. The ministry team will know what I'm saying. It's a remarkable environment when you can walk to the pulpit as a minister and the environment be ready for the Word of God. It's not always the case. I've been in environments where that was not the case. And today, the stage is set for the Word of God. And it just, it's, it's such a beautiful thing to step into that flow. I want to read from John chapter 16, verse 33. One verse of Scripture, Jesus Christ Speaking, he says this, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So says our leader, Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you this morning for just a few minutes from this subject, the law of the victor. The law of the victor. And before you're seated, I want you to just prepare yourself mentally. I want you to prepare yourself spiritually for an outpouring of the miraculous in this place today. I believe that before, and this is not conjecture, I believe that before we leave today, God wants to do some things. I, I believe He wants to do some miracles. And, and so if, if you're ready today and you want to walk out of this place with a victory, with a miracle, if you want to walk out of this place with your head held high knowing that if God is for you, nothing shall stand against you. I want you to just clap your hands to the Lord and declare victory in this place. Declare victory in your life. In Jesus' name, I want you to set your expectations high today. In Jesus' name, you may be seated finally. So I'll start today, I'll begin by just going ahead and messing up your theology a little bit and getting crossways with you, but the fact of the matter is, is that when Jesus was on this earth, He did not speak English. In fact, he didn't even speak the King James English. I'm sorry to break that bearer of bad tidings to you today. 
We know that Jesus spoke Aramaic, and uh, we know that more than probably he spoke a good deal of Greek and a lot of Hebrew as well. And allowing that the Romans ruled Israel during this time period, there's unquestionable that some common Latin phrases and words would have worked their way into the vernacular in the language of that day, that would have been familiar to most people. Just like you and I may occasionally use a phrase or a word that is really rooted in another language, but we know what it means and it's gained common acceptance in our speech. Perhaps one of these Latin phrases that would have worked their way into the, that would have worked its way into the fabric of the day, the, the, the uh, Ju, uh, Judea and Israel in that day, Perhaps it could be found in this verse that I've read in your hearing in Matthew 16, 33, where Jesus says, I have overcome the world. The phrase or the word there, overcome, could be swapped with a Latin term. I'll show you this in just a moment. This Latin term is called via victus. Via Victus, it was a term used by the Romans for the treatment and rights of those peoples and countries which they had conquered. The origins of the term date back to 390 B.C. when Rome itself was sacked by the Gauls and lost badly at, a battle called, at the battle of a place called Alea. The Gauls were led by their chieftain Brennus, and when they, when they quashed the Roman city, in that battle, the Gauls demanded a ransom of 1,000 pounds of gold. And so the Romans came forward and began bringing their gold and putting it on the Gauls' scales. But it soon became very clear to everybody that the scales were unevenly balanced or unfairly balanced. So despite what seemed to be more than enough gold that these Romans would keep putting on the scale... More and more and more was needed, and the scales never tipped fairly. So, cluing into this fact, the Romans began to express their outrage, and they began to murmur and complain, and and cries of unfairness began to be uttered. And ultimately, this rumble reached a fevered pitch, and it fell upon Brennus's ears, the one who had conquered. And so, Brennus walks up to the scales, and he, he slams that sword on the scales, sword of conquering. So now the Romans not only have to balance against unfairly weighted scales to begin with, now they're also balancing against that sword of Brennus. When he slams that sword on the scales, he yells, Via Victus, which in literal, literal translation means, Woe to the vanquished. To put it another way, maybe more commonly to understand, Via Victus simply means, The victor makes the rules. Regardless of what the enemy thinks is fair, regardless of any outcome that they think should be, the enemy is the vanquished, and as the conquered, they must simply obey the victor. So from that point forward, then, the Romans borrowed this phrase, via victus, and it worked its way into their their conquest and the enemies that they fought and subdued understood very clearly that when the words via victus were uttered, it meant that it doesn't matter what the conquered enemy thinks is equitable because the enemy doesn't make the rules. The conqueror has the ultimate authority. 
via victus. So when Jesus says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, he's simply saying that no matter what world system may be in place with its definition of what is fair, no matter what enemy you face that tries to tip the scales against you, none of that really matters because Jesus Christ, as the victor, has overcome death, hell, and the grave, and he makes the rules. Any natural sense of fairness or retribution that you might think should be an outcome no longer applies, and that outcome is no longer guaranteed. Let me say it like this. It no longer matters what you've done or what someone may have done to you. It only matters that Jesus has overcome the world. No longer matters what the doctor's report reads because Jesus has the final say. Your situation today may look bleak and there are no answers, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It may seem hopeless in your life with answers in short supply, but no weapon formed against you shall prosper. The the scriptures say that when Jesus ascended, he led captivity captive. That means he's the ultimate victor. It means he has the final authority. And so I want someone to understand in this place today that it's not over in your life until the victor says it's over. It's not over until Jesus Christ has had the last say. Oh, I think we ought to clap our hands. And I think we ought to shout jubilantly and victoriously to the victor, the one that has won every victory in our life. Thank you, Jesus. So with that in mind, let me take you back to the Gospels. I want to share this story with you. Observe as a a large, tumultuous crowd poured through Jericho's gates, rolling out of the city in a tumultuous noise of dust. Consider... That at its ever-shifting center, Jesus Christ, the rabbi from Galilee, is moving. And there's a crowd rushing by him, yet he keeps remarkable composure. And he interacts with those that that are fortunate enough to get within earshot of what he has to say. And people along the fringes are scrambling, hoping to catch just a glimpse and hear what he might have to say. And there's, there's a blind man seated on the side of the road. And he's not helping matters because he keeps yelling out and speaking out in the, in the, in the unintelligible croak of, a, of an alms seeker. And the people began to tell him to, to be quiet and try to hush. And they brush him aside and give him only a mouthful of dust for his trouble. Yet again, he calls out to Jesus and suddenly a hush comes over the crowd. And Jesus stops and he turns in the direction of that blind man's voice. They clear the way and... The beggar looks with blanched eyeballs to the sky, trembling as, as he realizes Jesus is coming his way and approaching him. And the crowd, now eager to see what Jesus is going to do, push the blind man forward in front of Jesus. And then a silence comes over the crowd as they wait to see what Jesus will do. And he addresses the blind man and says, What would you have me do? No question about it. The blind man Mind is going in a thousand directions just to even be addressed by the rabbi. And now his dusty mouth seems full of wool. He can't speak. And from the midst of a crowd, though, some way, somehow, he gets his answer. And he says, Lord, I want to see. And so Jesus reaches down. And in that, that clay, or in that dirt, 
adds some spittle and makes clay, applies it to the blind man's eyes, and in that moment, a miracle takes place, and the blind man now can see at the touch of the rabbi's hand. It's a miracle to be sure, a remarkable event that the townspeople of Jericho would never forget and would talk about for the rest of their life. But what makes this miracle all the more remarkable, as it does so many of the miracles that Jesus performed, is that in order to heal this blind man, Jesus Christ had to break the law. It was a law unfairly weighted against those who did not measure up against those who were not whole, against those that were outcasts, this law of Moses. It was the law of Moses that the Pharisees were so fond of keeping and enforcing, yet it even governed every aspect of Jewish life. The simple fact was that the entire purpose of the law was to differentiate between that which was clean and that which was unclean. And, that, if the, and, and if the clean touched the unclean, it defiled them. They could not be touched by, the un, by, or by those that were clean. And so the whole of Leviticus chapter 1 deals with this issue. And suffice it to say, there's a long list of those that would be considered unclean under the ceremonial law, under the law of Moses. It was just as a list here. Some of those would have been those that were blind, just like our blind man in the, in the story, those that are crippled, those that are maimed, those that are disfigured, those that have any kind of defect, even dead bodies. These were unclean and had no access to the presence of God under the law of Moses. Providing clarity in the modern era as to what con- was considered unclean by Jewish law, Rabbi Jacob Neusner said, if I had to say in a few words what makes something unclean, It is something that for one reason or another is abnormal. Something abnormal, something that didn't fit the mold, something that wasn't like the rest of its kind. Thus, a high priest offering a blemished sacrifice or that had come in contact with that which was unclean could be struck dead if he tried to go into the presence of God in that state. So this idea of clean versus unclean was no small matter because in many instances it was the matter of life versus death. And so we see that it is no small thing then that Jesus touches the blind man. It's no small thing then that this rabbi who ostensibly would have been living by the Jewish law comes in intimate contact in order to heal the the blind man. It's an unheard of situation. It's an unheard of act. It's, It's not something that would have been the norm by any stretch. Maybe this is why This is probably why the rabbi and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan walked around the injured man to the other side of the road because to have come in contact would have made them unclean. To come close would be to defile oneself. Yet that's what Jesus chose to do. This breaking of the rules, this sidestepping the accepted norms of Judaism, this flagrant disregard for the Mosaic law was by no means an unusual pattern of behavior for Jesus. In fact, through the Gospels, his critics tried to define him with such unsavory labels as glutton, friend of sinners, drunkard, blasphemer of God. Even his disciples were taken aback by the conversation with the Samaritan woman, for as the writer of the Gospel takes great pains to let us know, Jews had no dealings with 
Samaritans. Jesus calls a man by the name of Levi. We know him as Matthew. And immediately upon being called as a disciple, you know what Matthew does? He throws a party. And he invites all of his unsavory friends to come party over this great news of being called a disciple. Jesus attends the party and hangs out with these guys. All the Pharisees can do is stand at the door with a critical eye at their amazement that the rabbi would eat with sinners and publicans. The law said that you could not touch a corpse, yet we see Jesus barging into a home and raising Jairus' daughter back to life. The broken, the diseased, the hurting, the leprous, the dead, Jesus was not hindered in his ability to touch any of these. The unlovely received his gaze, the untouchable felt his hands. Those to whom life had been unfair felt the unconditional love and healing of the Master. In fact, the scripture said of Jesus in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, said God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Jesus himself said that the prophecy in Isaiah applied to him, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. With every touch of his hand, with every miracle performed, Jesus Christ was was proclaiming his authority. He was proclaiming his sovereignty, not only over the disease and the sickness, not only the natural norms of natural law, he was declaring his sovereignty and his authority over the Mosaic law. For the writer said in John 1.17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. Jesus touched And everything he touched was touched by grace. The unclean had Jesus' attention and he was willing to step over the law, even break the law in order to touch them. The only way that could be is that because as sovereign God come to earth in flesh, he had the authority to bring a new law, conquering the rule of sin, conquering the rule of Satan that had dominated the world for millennia. Jesus Christ came to declare a new covenant. He came to declare a new dispensation. The writer wrote in Galatians, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we may receive adoption of sons once he died once he buried once he rose from the tomb leaving it forever empty to mutely testify to the world of his sovereignty there was no question that the victory was in his hand and that this victory was for everyone Speaking of Jesus being begotten of the Father, John writes in his epistle, For whatsoever is born of God, that is Jesus, overcometh the world. And this, talking about Jesus being begotten, is the victory that overcometh the world. He said in, one, he said in our text, Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The religious law, the law of Moses that the Pharisees tried so hard to uphold, Jesus made it clear that he had come to overthrow that law with the law of grace. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through flesh, 
God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. He was saying here that it doesn't matter the rules. It doesn't matter what should be. It doesn't matter what the ultimate outcome of sin should have been. It doesn't even matter that the Pharisees wanted to kill him for it. All that matters is that Jesus Christ is the victor. Let me say it this way. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans via victus. The dead cannot come back to life via victus. A blind man can't have restored vision via victus. Lepers cannot be touched via victus. By this new standard, the enemy, the world, sickness, death, any situation does not have the right to have the final say in your life. I'm declaring to you today that which you think is dead, that which you think the enemy has already provided an outcome, doesn't matter because Jesus Christ is in control. It's because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. It's because Jesus Christ has the ultimate authority in your life. Oh yeah, he said, but thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, when you let Jesus Christ come into your life, you've let the ultimate victor come into your life. You've let ultimate victory come into your life. That's the kind of God that we serve. The end is not yet because Jesus Christ is not finished. Someone said so well, if you're still breathing and you're still alive, Jesus is not finished in your life and He can still do a work. So as if to put an an explanation point on this, allow me one more biblical illustration. Jesus made the point emphatically again coming out of the Gospels into the book of Acts. And, and I really want you to get this because I want to transition here for just a few moments. Talked about Jesus' ability to heal and to deliver and do all those things. We're going to come back to that. I want to talk to you about Jesus' ability to provide grace uh, in face of the law. So in the book of Acts, the point is made emphatically again, shortly after the establishment of the church. In Acts we're introduced not to an unnamed group of Pharisees who oppose Jesus at every step, an unnamed group of Pharisees who are trying so astutely to make sure the law is not broken and criticizing Jesus every time that it is. Instead, we meet a Pharisee and we're given his name in the book of Acts. This man's name is Saul. And here we find him continuing the tradition of these Pharisees, these forebears in the Gospels who persecuted Jesus. But Saul now is taking out retribution on the newly established church. He goes about killing and imprisoning any Christ follower, any Christian he can find. And as a Pharisee, Saul, who we know later becomes Paul, he has his name changed. In fact, it'll happen in just a moment when I get to that place in the story. Saul as a Pharisee, would have been ceremonially clean in every way. He would have kept every letter of the Mosaic law, dotting every I and crossing every T. He lived the law. He tells us he studied at the feet of the great Jewish rabbi and scholar Gamaliel. In fact, in the epistles Paul writes, he says, as touching the righteousness of the law, I am blameless. This guy was a proponent of the Mosaic law. And in Acts chapter 9, 
Saul was on one of his missions to imprison Christians when he is struck down by a light from heaven and he hears a voice, it's the voice of the Lord. And he, he has this a moment, this epiphany, this revelation and Jesus speaks to him and calls him uh, very dramatically. And when Paul gets up off the ground out of that experience, he finds that he has been struck blind. So now, this quintessential Pharisee, this keeper of the law in every way, one who by the measure of the law would be perfect, finds himself unclean. Because now, according to Leviticus chapter 1, he has a deformity. He's blind. And in that moment, it's as though God is saying to him, Saul, all of your living by the law, all of your piety, all your efforts to be holy, have no, made you no better than all of those blind men I healed when I walked through the earth. You're unclean, Saul, and the law you've been living under has let you down, and it is no help to you whatsoever. So God tells Saul, he says, I want you to go to the city, and I'm going to tell you what to do. And God sends a disciple by the name of Ananias to Saul. Ananias lays hands on him, the scales fall off his eyes, he's converted his name has changed to Paul. But here's the amazing thing about the story that I want you to get. In addition to Paul being struck as unclean under the law. This guy, this disciple, the Bible calls him Ananias. His name, Ananias, is a masculine form of the name Hannah. Be Hananias, Hananiah. And it simply means whom Jehovah has graciously given or we might just simplify that to say his name means grace. So Paul's been living an entire life under an imperfect law, standard of rules and measurements that could never be met no matter how hard you try. And now he's being introduced to the new law, the law of the victor. He's been introduced quite literally to grace. And that law, that law of grace sufficient And only by the law of grace sufficient can anyone ever stand clean in God's sight. This is the message that Paul, that God is trying to get across to Paul that day. He's saying, Paul, it's a grace unmerited. It's a grace unearned. It's a grace that, that, that you can't earn, but it can be freely given. And it's amazing because once Paul has this encounter with grace, there was no way he could go back to the old law. It forever changed his life. It marked his ministry. It marked everything he did. He he went from being the one that persecuted the church to the one that absolutely proclaimed the gospel everywhere he could. The scriptures say there were times Paul would preach the grace of God and the rulers and leaders of the, of the world would tremble under the weight of his words and the power of his message. This idea of grace marked everything Paul did. And that's why he could say at the end of his life in Acts 20, 24, he says, none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. 
It was the grace that Paul came to preach. It was the grace that marked his life. It was the grace that marked his ministry. In fact, he said, an entire dispensation of grace has been given unto me in Ephesians 3 and 2. And this idea of grace that Paul was introduced to, this law of grace, this more perfect way, this more perfect law, if ever there was an idea that was unfair, if ever there was a scale that was unfairly tipped against us, it's this idea that we were in sin and that we need grace. Grace is what tips the scales in our favor. Grace says... Life isn't fair, but it's not fair in your favor. Grace says that even though my righteousness is filthy rags at best, I can still be made clean by the blood of Jesus. Grace tells the enemy that even though you think you have claim to my life and have planned destruction, Jesus brought redemption in blood and stands victorious, balancing the scales of my life in favor of grace every time. Grace says, via victus. I don't know who you are today and what state you may have come into this building but I'm telling you today you're in the presence of God you're in a safe place you're in a place of grace both literally and the grace of God and here God can take care of your past here God can take care of your present and here God can take care of your future there's healing there's hope and there's restoration I'm telling you, you're standing in the presence of a victor. And the victor has said, the scales are tipped in your favor. The scales say that where there's sin, I'm bringing grace. The scales say that where you were under a law of shame and condemnation, I'm bringing life abundant in the kingdom of God. I've been teaching the um, new members class over the last several Wednesday nights and gotten an opportunity to know Lyle and Donna uh, through the membership class. And last Wednesday night after we were done, um, they, they, uh, they sat down with me for a while, probably 15, 20 minutes, and told me their testimony. And they have a tremendous, tremendous, powerful testimony. You need to hear it. You need to have them tell it. And I've got their permission to at least just give you a quick overview today. But the bottom line is, is when they were teenagers, they got caught up in the drug culture, heavy drugs, heavy drug use, dealing, and all those things. And and there was, this is what I want you to get, there was a path of destruction ahead of them. They'll tell you, they were on a path that led to nothing but shame and misery and heartache and even death. And somehow, some way, Jesus reached down into their lives. And he says, I, I know the scales are, are weighed over here with, with all of this bondage and all of this sin and all of this addiction and this lifestyle and, and your friends and the, and the people you're with and, and the community you're in and all that is, is weighing over here and it's telling you that, that this is going to be the outcome. But it's like when Jesus stepped in their life, he just, he just took that sword and he, he slams it on the scales and he says, but let me tell you a better outcome. Let me tell you a better way to live. Let me tell you, I can bring you out. Let me tell you, there's healing for your scars. Let me tell you, there's forgiveness of sin. Let me tell you, there's deliverance from addiction. Let me tell you, I can set you on a path that leads to eternal life. I'm telling you, this is what happens when the victor comes into your life. Happens when walks in and says, I have overcome the world. Oh, I wish somebody would clap your hands and shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And they'll tell you, this has been over 30 years ago. All of those friends 
All of those people that didn't, they didn't open their lives to the victor. They didn't open their lives to having those scales balanced correctly in favor of grace. They're, they're suicide, death, destruction, prison. Nothing but a negative outcome. And they'll tell you today their life has been nothing but blessing. It's been nothing but, but careers and education and God doing marvelous things in their family and their kids and just a, a life of, of abundance, as the Bible says, because the victor spoke in their life. I'm going to ask the musicians to come and singers, and, and we're going to wind down, but I, I want to I try to package this all up, and, and, I, and I'm hoping this will apply to somebody today. I'm hoping you'll, you'll take this. This is more, I struggle with this, I struggle putting this message together because I don't want it to be conceptual. I don't want it to be theoretical. I don't, I don't want it to just be a story about Brennus and, and the Gauls and the Romans. I want it to be something you can take home and use in your life today. I want it to be something you can use in your life tomorrow. I want it to be something you can use in your life the rest of this year and beyond. So this story of Brennus and the the Gauls and the Romans and, and all of that business, the Via Victus. I got, that story was told to me by my good friend Ben Nolan over the Christmas holidays. Ben Nolan, uh, his wife, Ranny Nolan, great friends of ours. They live in Chicago. Ben is absolutely brilliant. The man is a financial broker. He, he flies all over the world, meeting with some of the most brilliant financial minds in the world, brokering these financial deals. And and God, uh, when he was a teenager, God filled him up with the Holy Ghost. Actually, our former youth president, Michael Enzi, witnessed to him, witnessed to Ben through the ministry of Bible quizzing. So I want our Bible quizzers to know you don't just memorize the Word of God, you share the Word of God. And that's what happened. Michael, Brother Michael Enzi is a Bible quizzer studying his Bible quizzing. And long story short, uh, got Ben involved in Bible quizzing, and that's how Ben came to the Lord. And, he, and the man's brilliant. He's a scholar of the word. And in the church they're at in Chicago, Illinois, he's called on many times to share Bible study and service leading and that, that kind of thing. And he, came, he got this idea, this via victus, and he was telling me about it at Christmas time over the holidays they were here visiting. And I said, Ben, I said, I'm using it. I said, I'm stealing it. I'm telling you right now, there's a sermon all over that. And, and he said, go for it. And as you can see, I did do that. And uh, at least I'm being honest and telling you where, where the genesis of this is. But, he, but, but this is the thing. It's, it's, it gets so, so good. So that night uh, at the house, as he shared this, this via Victus and Brennus and then all these things with me, he also gave a testimony of what happened. And I, I'm saying this with a smile on my face. You, you just, you're going you're gonna to get this. I missed the testimony that night because he had my brain so twisted up with swords and scales and Latin. And I was still I was still in that part of the conversation and he had moved on. And thankfully, he followed up with an email because I had expressed interest in all this, uh, knowing knowing that it had uh, Grace Church written all over it and what God wanted to do. And uh, so he follows up with an email. Now, I went back and looked. He wrote me this email on January the 1st, 2020, so the first of this year. What I'm about to tell you just happened. I mean, you're talking about a matter of months ago this happened. And I, I've decided that the best way to do is to read this to you in Ben's own words. So this is what Ben says. He said this took just, just a few months ago. This took place in their church at Chicago, in Chicago, Apostolic Church. He said, there's this guy I've been picking up for, the church, for church who has ALS, Lou Gehrig's syndrome. His name is Nick. 
He, over the course of the last four months, lost the ability to walk. He says here in parentheses, his legs had effectively become noodles. He said he lost the ability to eat, to speak. His lungs were not functioning well. Uh, He only had the use of his left hand. At the pace of the deterioration, and I want you to catch that, at the pace of the deterioration, this was a downhill diagnosis. The doctors did not expect him to live much longer. He said it was pretty bad. I I had to lift him into the car from his wheelchair and help him, etc. Still, this guy, Nick, kept coming to church. And and Ben's way of, of communicating, he says, after I gave the Via Victus talk, he sent me, he said, Nick sent me a text, which was the only way he could communicate with that left hand. He said he was really moved and believed that the word, that word was for his life. Ben, he's just so laid back and nonchalant. I mean, it's not even an exclamation point in this. He says, the next week, Nick got up out of his wheelchair and pushed me, Ben, running around the church in the wheelchair. He said, the doctors don't have an explanation. He's walking, he's talking, he's eating, he's running, everything. That's the power of the victor. Oh, come on, stand. Why don't you stand up and let's give God some praise. That's the power of the victor. That's the law of the victor. Now again, Ben, don't get real excited. Here's how he ends the email. And I want, I'm telling, boy, I feel the Holy Ghost right now. I want somebody, you better grab this, you better get it, and you better run down to this altar and declare it over your life. I'm telling you, declare it over your home, declare it over every situation. This is how Ben signs off his email. ALS is regressive, always. It's the rule, the evictus. Whatever's going in your life, you don't have to accept that outcome. I don't care what the law says. I don't care what the diagnosis says. I don't care what the rules say. I don't care what the law of sin and death say. There is a victor. The evictus. Jesus Christ makes the rules in your life. Jesus Christ has the authority in your life. Oh, come on. I got a few more things to say. But why don't you just come on down right now with your hands raised up and your voice lifted. Come on, declare that in your life right now. I wouldn't step back. I wouldn't stand down. But I would walk in authority and say, Thus saith the word of the Lord in my life. Thus saith the word of the Lord in my situation. Oh, come on, Grace Church. If you don't have a need today, find somebody to pray for. If you don't have a need today, find somebody to lay hands on. Because I guarantee you there's needs in this house. I guarantee you there's people that need God to work. Come on right now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Come on. Come on. Come on. Declare it in victory. Declare it in victory right now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Come on, somebody let God have his way. Let let God have his way. Let God have his way.